Please turn with me back to Philippians chapter 3 in your Bibles. We have a tremendous passage, but man, it is a, it's a meaty one, which means it is going to require thinking today. Thinking. So I, I hope you are ready for that. You're like, listen, I'm, I'm saving all my thinking for school this next week. Okay, well, we need to borrow a little of that, that thinking for right now. Um, so please uh, be, be ready to kind of look at this passage critically and think through it carefully. Just, uh, just to let you know ahead of time, I am relying heavily for my outline on uh, Tony Merida's outline and his commentary. He's not the only commentary I read. I, I read a lot of different people, but his put it in the clearest way. So I'm, I'm leaning heavily on him for my outline. Uh, we are going to jump in. Now, th- this is a tremendous, tremendous text. And uh, I'm going to sort of put it in two major sections. So verses 1 through 6 are going to be the marks of those who know Christ. 3, 1 through 6, the marks of those who know Christ. And then 3, 7 through 11 is simply how to know Christ. So the marks of those who know Christ and then how to know Christ. And we'll break those into smaller pieces as we go. Let me just read the first six verses again for us. So again, this is the word of the Lord. Philippians 3, 1 through 6. Finally, my brothers... Rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evil doers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, That's number one, number two of the people of Israel, number three of the tribe of Benjamin, number four a Hebrew of Hebrews, number five as to the law a Pharisee, number six as to zeal a persecutor of the church, and number seven as to righteousness under the law blameless. Okay, so everybody just, I I think we all know this, but just catch us up, put us on the same page here. The Apostle Paul, who wrote 13 letters in the New Testament, used to be Saul of Tarsus, the Pharisee. And while he was the Pharisee, he was an unrecognizably different character. And instead of being a proponent of Christianity, he was an opponent of Christianity. He was against it. He was as against the Christian faith as anyone could be at the time. And so Paul, you, you may remember this, in the book of Galatians, he's dealing with false teachers who want you to become basically a convert to Judaism before you can fully be a convert to Christianity. Right, And the way you convert to Judaism with the Old Testament, if you're an adult male, circumcision comes number one. That kept, I'm not even joking right now, that kept a lot of people from converting. They called them God-fearers because they were like, I'm not going to go all the way there. And other people did. They would be full uh, converts as adults who were Gentiles. They would convert to Judaism, and then they would keep all the Jewish laws. Not just the Ten Commandments, but like, you know, uh, don't eat non-kosher, you know, avoid non-kosher food. Um, all strict Sabbatarian laws and on and on. And so Paul knew that whenever he left the church, it was only a matter of time before these false teachers showed up, called them the Judaizers. And when they showed up, they said, hey, we believe in Jesus too. He's the Messiah. He died for our sins and rose. And if you want to fully step into the people of God, if you want to fully participate in the gospel of grace, you've got to believe in Jesus, yes, they didn't deny that. You can look at Acts 15. They, they affirmed that. Plus, they said, plus, you need to 
be circumcised, adopt all the Jewish ceremonial laws, and basically become Jewish in your religious beliefs as well as believing in Jesus to fully be right before God. Now, do you see how serious of an error that is? They're adding to the finished work of Jesus works that you and I do. And so, Paul warns in strong language about these people. So look again, verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. So Paul says, you need joy. And then he says, okay, I got to warn you about something that's not safe. Apparently, Paul had talked about this before when he was at Philippi. And now he's reminding them again, you, you need to look out for something that's going to cause you trouble and it will not be safe for you. What, what is this he's warning us about? Again, he's repeating himself. Why is Paul, what, what is Paul focusing on? Verse 2, he tells us three times. He says, look out. So here's who we need to look out for. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evil doers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now, I don't, I don't know about you, but growing up, I would read Philippians 3, and I love the later part of the chapter, but this part, I was like, Paul, what are you talking about? Who, who is this group of people, the dogs, the evildoers, the mutilators of the flesh? I have no idea what he's talking about. Well, let, let's see if this makes sense. You know that Jewish people at the time would oftentimes refer to another group of people, a large group of people, as dogs. Even Jesus did. Remember Jesus talking to the Syrophoenician woman? The, the people of Israel are the children at the table, but the Gentiles are the dogs, remember? So Jews called Gentiles dogs because they were unclean. Now, I know you have a lovable puppy at home. I know you do. Okay, you've got, you've got your favorite dog at home, and you love your dog, and you wrap yourself around that dog, and your dog sleeps in your bed next to you. Some of you have real problems, okay? Just, so we, we love our dogs. In America, we spend a lot of money on, on our pets and things like that, and I understand that. But back in this time period, don't think lovable puppy dog. Uh, dogs are universally considered unclean and nasty in the Bible. A dog returns to its vomit in the Proverbs and in Second Peter. Uh, Jesus talks about the, the, the Lazarus, the poor man begging with his open sores and the dogs licking his sores in Luke 16. Uh, over and over, dogs are negative. Do not give to dogs what is sacred. Do not cast your pearls before pigs. Dogs are always negatively portrayed throughout Scripture. I think in every example, I think virtually every example, it's negative. It's a J Jewish term of derision towards unclean Gentiles especially. Now, here's the irony. The Judaizers are ethnically Jewish. That's why they're Judaizers. And Paul is flipping the paradigm backwards on these people. He says, oh, oh, you guys think that you're not unclean dogs because you've been circumcised, you're Jewish, you've adopted the Jewish religion, you think you've got to have that plus Jesus for salvation. Actually, if you believe that, you're the dogs. See, he's flipping the language around. The, the Jewish people who, who in this place are adding to Jesus are as unclean as a Gentile, he says. Then he says... Look out for the evildoers. Now, the irony of these people is there's nobody more committed to doing good than the Judaizers, right? They're Pharisees. What do you mean evildoers? We're the, we're the greatest doers of good on the planet. We are the most uh, scrupulous in keeping the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament and all those laws. And Paul says, actually, if you're adding those laws to Jesus to make you saved, you're actually doing evil when you think you're doing good. 
You're, you're creating self-righteousness, not genuine righteousness. They would not have appreciated these names, by the way. Number three may be the most oof, severe of all. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now, I'm no Greek scholar, but I will tell you a couple Greek words. The word for circumcision in Greek is paratome, to cut around, ladies and gentlemen. I'm just going to tell you. The other word in Greek that he uses here is katatome, which means to mutilate or to cut to pieces. And what Paul says here is, you guys who are saying that circumcision is necessary for a right relationship with God, now that Jesus has come, you're actually teaching something no different than a pagan ritual of mutilating your body to appease a god. It's the same word used in 1 Kings when Elijah, remember the prophets of Baal, they put, the, they put all the wood up and they put the sacrifice, they're calling for what to come down? Fire to come down from heaven. And the prophets of Baal begin to cut themselves, katatome. They begin cutting their bodies as a pagan belief to try to impress the Baal, the, the false god. And Paul uses that word and applies it to the Jewish people promoting circumcision plus Jesus. And he goes, you guys are actually not obeying Scripture, you're actually mutilating your bodies like a pagan ritual now that Jesus has come. Now, do you see how inflammatory that language would have been? I mean, he is just flipping it upside down. just want to put a footnote here. Now, I've got to be careful with this because, man, this can be abused so horribly, so don't abuse this. But I will say that there is a way in which modern evangelicalism has, I think, taken the attribute of niceness and elevated elevated niceness higher than the Bible. Because what Paul says right here is not nice. I mean, is it nice if someone called you a dog, an evildoer, and a mutilator of the body? He would say, that's not very nice. Uh, that probably wouldn't play on Christian radio, right? The mutilators of the flesh, it's not going to be there, okay? We we've elevated sort of a polite niceness as being the ultimate fruit of the Spirit. And I'm just telling you, sometimes love demands severe language with tears and love. This language is not going to be, you know, Christian TV friendly, but it is inspired by God, and it is biblical and true. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so sometimes, and we don't want to be this way all the time, but there is a place for Holy Spirit courage where things sometimes are said very directly and on point that would not perhaps be considered as polite or nice as we imagine. Um, should I even say these things? Um, for instance, I've known a number of Mormon missionaries in my life. Mormon missionaries are the nicest people I've ever met. Now, are you ready for some severe language? They promote a false gospel that is not that far off from the false gospel here. I would say it's further off than the false gospel here. So, in other words, someone can be extraordinarily nice in their outward demeanor. They can be trustworthy, reliable, people of integrity who keep their word, all those things, and yet they can still be promoting a false gospel that leads us away from the saving message of Jesus. So, we, we need to know that, and we need to keep that in mind. That doesn't mean we don't love those people. It means we, we love them, but we love them with biblical knowledge and awareness. Now, Paul is going to really flip the tables even more. Look at verse 3. He's, when he says we, he means the church made up of Jews and Gentiles. Verse 3, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence 
in the flesh. Now, hold your spot and go to the left, if you can, to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. And I want you to see a similar sort of point that Paul's making here in Romans 2. See if you can see the point. So, Paul is referring to Jews and Gentile Christians as the circumcision. What does that mean? Romans 2, look down at verse 25. For circumcision is indeed of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not, listen, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one, what? Outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Now, I, I know that this is still a controversial point, but I, I think it's here in, this, in these texts. Paul is saying true Jewishness is something that happens inside of you. It's not about your skin or your outward upbringing or your outward physical circumcision. A true Jew is someone with a circumcised heart. In other words, every, t- you know, every time circumcision comes up, it's our favorite topic, isn't it, as Christians? It just comes up all the time. So, l- let me just give you a little something about the, the biblical picture of circumcision because it's so important in the Bible. So, so, just hang with me for a second. In the Old Testament, all Jewish males, especially boys who were born, were circumcised a week after their birth, and, and then God will say these things throughout the Old Testament. Deuteronomy, Jeremiah, Leviticus, He'll say, you guys are circumcised in body, but you must be circumcised also in heart. And this is repeating in the Old Testament. Then Deuteronomy 30 verse 6 says, when the Lord brings you back from exile, the Lord will circumcise your heart. What will that do? That you may love the Lord your God with all your heart and that you and your children may live. So the point is, circumcision of heart means God performs surgery and he cuts away our sin nature. He cuts away the flesh and he creates a new heart, a born again, regenerated heart. So don't be confused by the language. A, an internal circumcision is a born again heart. The flesh is cut away, and there is a new heart loving the Lord and beating for the Lord. And this makes us truly part of God's people. It's no longer, in the new covenant, it's no longer about outward transformation or outward ethnicity. It's about an inward transformation, being a Jew inwardly uh, from the heart. And that will be counted as your circumcision. Now turn with me back to Philippians chapter 3. Now, do you see what Paul's doing with his opponents here? He says, I I agree with you. You've got to be part of God's people. I agree. You've got to have circumcision. But it's no longer in the new covenant physical and ethnic. It's about a change of your heart that makes you. So, So now he looks at a church full of Gentiles and Jews, and he says, we in Jesus are the peritome. We are the circumcision. Wow incredibly amazing language there. We are God's true people. Look at uh, Philippians 3, 3. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God 
and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Now, just technical here real quick. Worship by the Spirit of of God. He doesn't say here that we worship the Spirit of God. Now, the Spirit is God. But, But the primary thing we do is we worship Jesus by the Spirit of God. A famous illustration, you remember Jesus said, when I leave, when I ascend, I will send the Holy Spirit, and He will glorify me. And uh, there's a story of J.I. Packer, who just went to be with the Lord a couple of weeks ago in his 90s. I'm sure many of you have read uh, his books, Knowing God especially. J.I. Packer tells a story of he was going to preach one winter at a church, and he was walking to the church building down the road, and it was night, dark. And he, turned, he was trying to think of an illustration for this idea that the Spirit, we, we, the Spirit focuses the glory on Jesus. And he turned a corner, and he saw the church he was about to preach at. And he said it was lit up like a Christmas tree. Just think it was just lit up bright with all these lights. And he said as he walked toward it, he thought, that's my illustration. I'm like, Packer, what do, you, what do you mean? And he said, well, here's the thing. I couldn't, he said, I could not see from where I was the lights themselves. But I could never have seen the church without the lights. See, if you're lighting a building, you don't want the lights to draw attention to themselves, right? If you're lighting a building at night, you want the, you want the lights to be basically invisible, right? Like hidden away behind bushes, d- dug into the ground, hidden away. But you want them to illuminate the glorious structure that you want to draw attention to. And the Holy Spirit, we worship by the Spirit. The Spirit puts the spotlight on Jesus, and we worship by the Spirit. We worship Jesus. He will glorify me. And then he says... We put no confidence in the flesh. Now, this is where I'm especially going to be relying on, on Tony's uh, outline here. So, we as believers are, are marks of those who know Jesus. We are the true people. We're circumcised in heart. We boast in Christ Jesus. And then number three, I want to spend some time on, we put no confidence in the flesh. So, look with me again, verse 4. Put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Okay, what's Paul doing here? Here's what Paul knows could be a problem. Um, Paul is like, Paul is saying, listen, the reason why I am criticizing the Judaizers is not because I'm jealous of them and their accomplishments, and I just kind of want to just, I feel like I'm, if I'm competing with them in terms of keeping Jewish law, I'm losing, and so out of my jealousy, I'm criticizing them. Does that make some sense? Paul says, no, I'm I'm not doing that. Actually, if you want to play the who's the better Pharisee game, which is a great game, I recommend it for youth group, who's the better Pharisee game, it's a great game. So so if you want to play the who's the better Pharisee game, guess who wins that game? The guy writing this letter, right? The Apostle Paul says, oh, you want to play? Let's compare our Pharisaic righteousness. Let's play. I'll beat you guys at that game, and then I'm going to call the whole game off. Okay, so Paul's saying, listen, if you want to play the works righteousness game, I will beat everybody, but that's not the right game to play. Do you see what he's doing? If he can prove that he's better than everybody else, he's proving that the reason he's dismissing them is not because of jealousy. He's better than they are, but he doesn't want to play that game. It will never get you to God playing that game. So that's why he says, I have more reasons than anybody else. So now we're going to walk through seven reasons 
uh, not to, or seven uh, reasons not to put confidence in our flesh. Number one, verse five, circumcised on the eighth day. We've talked about that. Paul says, hey, I wasn't circumcised as an adult. I wasn't circumcised as a Gentile convert. I was circumcised according to God's law on the eighth day. Thank you very much. You can't have a more legitimate version of it than I have. So I would score number one A plus on my report card here. And what we're learning is if, if you're in the room, listen to this. Don't put confidence in religious ritual. Do not say, I am going to stand righteous before God because of religious ritual. Maybe you've been baptized. Uh, whether you were baptized as a baby or baptized as an adult, whatever it is, do not put stock in a past baptism as that's the reason I know God will accept me is because I've been baptized. Or in Paul's case, I've been circumcised or something of that nature. Don't do that. Number two, Paul says he is of the people of Israel. So here, don't put confidence in your ethnicity, whatever that ethnicity might be, that is not the reason that you will stand righteous before God. It doesn't give us anything in terms of our standing before God. God made all human beings in His image. All ethnicities are in His image, but that is no grounds of acceptance before a holy God. Number three, He is of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, you might not think that's as impressive, but stop for a second. Remember, there's how many tribes? Twelve tribes. You know, ten of them, after David and Solomon, ten of them rebelled against the Davidic dynasty, and they went north, and they created the northern kingdom, which was later called Israel, kind of ironically. And so ten tribes abandoned the Davidic line, and only one tribe stayed with Judah. It was the tribe of Benjamin. How about this? The first king in Israel's history was named Saul, guess who Paul was named after? He's of the tribe of Benjamin. He was obviously named after Saul. Who else would he be named after? Uh, that makes a lot of sense. Number three, Benjamin actually owned the property in the promised land where Jerusalem is. So Jerusalem is inside Benjamin's allotment, which is kind of a pretty nice thing to, to say. Also, Benjamin is the only son of the 12 tribes, the only one born in the promised land his mother actually dying while giving birth. Tragic stories you read about Rachel there, but he was born in the promised land. So there were numerous advantages about being from the tribe of Benjamin. You say, I'm not from the tribe of Benjamin. What does this have to do with me? This means do not put confidence in your rank. Whatever kind of ranking system you use in your heart or life, it might be in business, it might be in school, it might be how much money you make. It might be a position that you have somewhere that kind of puts you above the rest of everyone else. You kind of feel, man, I can't believe I made it to this level. I can't believe I've achieved this goal. Do not boast or put your confidence in your rank. Number four, a Hebrew of Hebrews. If Paul hasn't made his point clear already, he's very Jewish, his point. <laughs> if he hasn't made his point clear already, he says, listen, some Jewish people have grown up, this will, this will put us all to sleep, ready for the word, in a Hellenized world. Remember Hellenization, the spread of the Greek culture? And the idea was to sort of, over time, to kind of get rid of the Jewish culture and to enhance the Greek culture. And Paul says, listen, I have not been taken over by Hellenization. I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. Uh, I, I am truly and, and thoroughly Hebrew. So we should not put confidence in our traditions, 
Don't, don't boast in and put our confidence in our traditions. Number five, Paul says, as to the law, a Pharisee. Okay, now we all know about the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the most intense rule-keeping group imaginable, and so Paul is telling us, do not put confidence in your ability to keep the rules as your ground of boasting before God. Number six, this one's a little interesting. Number six, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. <laughs> you may say, how is that something to brag about? Like, God, I know I can stand before you because I killed Christians. You're like, that, I don't see how that's going to be helping you at all. Uh, so, so why would Paul even think that killing Christians, persecuting the church, would help him have more righteousness before God? Why would you even think that? Okay, you got to hang with me for a second here. This takes us back to the, to, the, to the line of not only Elijah, but also of a guy named Phineas. Some of you Old Testament lovers know Phineas Numbers, I think it's 25, where I had to look it back up this week to make sure I remembered the story. But if you remember, Israel's about to go into the promised land, they're not that far away, and some of the men of Israel grab, essentially grab some of these Midianite women and begin to have uh, inappropriate relationships with these women who, are, who worship foreign gods. And there's a particularly harrowing account in Numbers 25 where one of these men boldly takes a Midianite woman, walks straight into the camp during a plague where God's judging them for this sin. And this guy just doesn't care. Takes the Midianite woman, not his wife, straight into the camp. He goes into a tent, and they begin to, have a, uh, they begin to sleep together. And while this is happening, it's in the sight of all the leadership. Phineas is like, okay, the Lord is judging us for this very thing, and we need to do something to stop this. So he took a spear, and he walks over to the tent. You remember? He opens the tent up, and he throws the spear through the both of them through their midsection, and kills them both, and the, God stopped the plague because of that. And Phineas gets a lot of recognition because what he did was the right thing to do in that time and in that covenant. And so, think about this. Put yourself in Saul, Saul of Tarsus' position, okay? He believes a crucified Messiah is utter garbage and nonsense. There's no way the Messiah is going to be cursed of God on a tree. That's not possible. He's going to kill the Romans. He's not going to be killed by the Romans. Jesus can't be the Messiah, right? That's what he thinks. And so, everybody following Jesus as the Messiah is, a, is following a false religious sect that is going to lead toward apostasy in the people of God because they are abandoning the ceremonial laws and the civil laws of Israel. This is going to lead towards great rebellion. And what will God do? God will do what He always does. He'll judge our whole nation, probably letting the Romans destroy us for following this false Messiah. And so what's the best thing you can do for the people of God is sharpen your spear like Phineas. You do the Phineas thing. You do the Elijah with the prophets of Baal thing. You, you begin to shed blood. So Paul goes, okay, I know that Jesus is not the Messiah. I know his church is a false sect of Judaism. And I know if I can kill and stop Christianity, I will be scoring major points with God. Isn't that amazing? So he sees persecuting the church testified to Paul's religious devotion to the God of Israel in his mind. Now that's not true, but you see how he thought that way. So this applies to us. We should not put confidence even in the most extreme forms or any form of religious zeal. Finally, his list number seven. But whatever, excuse me, um, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Now, I, I want to say here, this does not mean Paul thought he was sinlessly perfect as a Pharisee. 
Has that ever confused you? It's confused me. How? He thought he was blameless. Is there a way to deal with your sin in the old covenant time? Yes, there are sacrifices. So, Paul is simply saying he hasn't committed some high-handed sin, and when he does make mistakes, he deals with it through animal sacrifice. As far as the law goes, he is blameless. I mean, he's keeping the law so far as that goes. At least, that's the way he would have seen it. And then, he's on his way to Damascus to persecute and imprison Christians, and he meets Jesus in heaven, and everything changes in his view of life. So, let's move here to how to know Christ. And just these verses are pretty astonishing. Let's look first at 7 and 8. Paul says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Now, do you see here? Paul was so proud of those seven things he just listed. His heritage and his achievements in life, he was astonishing. If he, you know, if he was in, was it uh, Awana or whatever, you know, the, you know, the, you know the, the sash? His sash, he would have to have like five sashes, okay? His, he, they'd be iron, every night he'd be like, Mom, iron another one of those stamps on here. I mean, he would, he would just be covered in those things. He, he, he was just incredible. He says in, in Galatians and in Acts, when you read his words, I was accomplishing more than many of my own age. So zealous was I for the traditions of my father, of, of, our, of my father's. And what happened is in a moment, over those three days when he was blind, right, when he met Jesus, suddenly he realized that the road he'd been traveling down, all the accomplishments were absolutely worthless, and that none of it, none of it had given him 1% of a right standing before God. None of it. Zero. And he turns and sees Jesus, and he sees that Jesus is the way, Jesus gives us righteousness to stand faultless before God, and that we can know Christ. And he says, okay, Everything I used to have on my, you know, you can have like the gain column and the loss column on a sheet of paper, you know, you can sort of, you can, all my gains over here, my wins and then my losses. Everything on his sheet of paper flipped backwards. So he was boasting in my heritage and my upbringing, my accomplishments, my religion, my achievements, my morality. I just stop here. You say, well, okay, that's first century. I, I will tell you today, the number one, I, I think I can say this without hesitation here. The number one thing that keeps people from the gospel of Jesus isn't like atheism or something like that. The number one thing that keeps people from the gospel is a perception, a misperception of their own righteousness. If you ask the average person, I've done this before, if you ask people at random, are you a good person? You know what nine out of ten, maybe 99 out of 100 people say? Yeah, sure. Haven't killed anybody. I mean, I've literally had these conversations. At UGA's campus, students will say, I'm a 7 out of 10. I'm an 8 out of 10. I'm a 9 out of 10. We've even heard of some 10 out of 10. So I was like, wow, sir, can I kiss your feet? That is an incredible thing. I've never met a perfect person before. So people, the reason why people are not desperate for salvation is because they don't think they need to be saved. I mean, if, if you don't think you're sick, you're probably not taking a lot of medicine, Right? And if you think that you've got a serious illness, then you're going to get very serious about treatment. 
But if you don't think you're sick, you're not going to pursue, pursue a cure. Most people think, I'm a decent person. And they compare themselves to Adolf Hitler, and they, you know, they, they look at you know, Joseph Stalin, they look at these mass murderers, and they say, I'm nothing like that. I'm, I'm way over here on the good side. I mean, yeah, I've got a few minor blemishes, but I'm fundamentally a good person. I, you know, I care for others. I, I love others. I'm kind to strangers and to my family. And, and, and Paul, it took Paul this moment where he woke up and said, all that I was trusting in of my accomplishments, I realized it was absolute loss and emptiness and nothing. Look at verse 8, the end of verse 8. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. It's an infamous word there, isn't it? Scubalon, right? That's a great Greek word there. It, it means, you know, the King James famously translates it dung, which is a good translation of that word. Uh, it, it means sewage. It means, uh, it means manure. It, it, it is a pretty pretty negative word. And Paul says, my resume of religious achievements, all my Bible knowledge, all my Sabbath keeping, all my Bible teaching, all the things that I've ever done, all, the, all these things I think I've done for God and I've tried to earn my acceptance with God, it is like sewage and manure compared to the righteousness of Jesus. And many commentators said, there's no way Paul's not thinking of Isaiah 64, 6. My most righteous acts are filthy rags. It's a very similar perception there. Paul went from thinking his righteous deeds were gold and jewels to thinking, no, they're actually sewage. That, that's what happened. When he met Jesus, he saw how far short his righteousness fell of God's true standard. Okay, now for the sake of time here, we've still got a, an important part to go. So this is just amazing. I don't think I'd ever seen this before, but so many people pointed this out, and I think that they're right. 9, 10, and 11 are just almost picture perfect. Verse 9 is justification, verse 10 is sanctification, and verse 11 is glorification. And I don't think, I don't know of another spot in the Bible where those three things are defined so succinctly and back-to-back -back in three verses like this. Maybe there is another place, but this is just astonishing. So, let's look first at justification, verse 9. This is one of the clearest statements in all of the Bible. What is justification? So, going into verse 9, he says, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that, that is that righteousness, which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So here are our two options. One day we will stand before the judge. Now, I don't know about you, if you've ever had to be in a courtroom for any reason, uh, it, it's, it's a frightening thing. People, I've seen people, I've seen a woman literally trembling to her arm was shaking violently while she stood before the person who was giving her verdict. Uh, just this, there's this terrifying sense standing before a judge as they hold your, their, your fate in their hands. One day we stand before God as judge. And Paul says, you've got two options. You either will have a righteousness of your own making, a righteousness of your own that comes from law-keeping, or you'll have a righteousness from God by faith. It's either an achieved righteousness of your own or a freely received righteousness from another. 
But those are the two options. Either you will stand before God and give an account for every thoughtless word and deed, or you will stand clothed in the righteousness of Jesus, spotless, stainless, and without any cause for repute. Now, look, look, look with me here at verse 10. Sanctification. Paul moves on. He says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Now, it's important to see here. Uh, as soon as Paul says, I want to know the power of Christ's resurrection, he knows immediately that could be misunderstood as sort of a prosperity theology. To know resurrection power, oh man, that means I'll never go through any suffering. If I've got resurrection power, I'll never face sickness and disease or whatever it may be. But no, Paul says that I might know the power of his resurrection while sharing in his sufferings. He doesn't separate the two. So, resurrection power enables Paul to endure, not avoid sufferings in this life. Resurrection power enables Paul to endure joyfully, not avoid suffering, and it helps him better know and be conformed to Jesus. There's much more that could be said, but I will continue on to the last one, to glorification, uh, verse 11. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So, many of you know this probably as well as anyone. Justification is when I, in my filthy rags and filthy garments, come to Jesus. Jesus has spotless clothes because He never sinned. He has perfect, flawless garments of righteousness. I, my most filthy deeds are my most righteous deeds are filthy rags. As I stand before Christ, Jesus offers you right now in this moment a great exchange that God made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, Jesus takes your filthy rags, if you trust Him, He'll take your filthy rags and He wears them Himself. And on the cross, He is treated as a sinner, even though He's not. And Jesus turns right around and takes His sinless righteousness, His perfect garments, and He clothes you in His righteousness, even though you and I are not righteous in practice, but we are counted righteous. Was Jesus a sinner on the cross? No, but He was counted as a sinner. Are we righteous right now? No, but we are counted righteous in Christ. That is the great doctrine of justification by faith. It's not by works. It's by turning and trusting only in Jesus. Number two, we then begin to walk in the power of the Spirit, experiencing His power of newness of life in the midst of the struggles and sufferings of this life. As we walk through suffering, we experience His power to keep us going. Ephesians 2, while we were dead, He made us alive. And then number three, we anticipate joyfully one day the resurrection from the dead. So there's just one last part here before we move to communion. This is glorious. So, if Jesus does not come back for, let's say, 100 more years, some of you are like, it, it may be tomorrow, looking how things are. Okay. So, if Jesus doesn't come back for 100 years, then if you and I as believers, if we die, our physical body dies and is buried in the ground, and our soul goes to heaven where the Lord Jesus and all saints are, and we have immediate access to Jesus, to die 
is to be with Christ, which is far better than this life. Philippians 1. So when we die, our body goes into the ground, our soul goes to be with the Lord. But I will tell you, contrary to popular belief, that is not the end of the story. That's just an interim period. We then don't stay forever up there in heaven. Instead, at the end of the Bible, heaven comes down to earth. And there is a new heavens and a new earth where the home of righteousness. And you and I get a new, resurrected, renewed body that can never die. And that body will never experience temptation again. I mean, can that day come sooner? I am so sick of my own daily sinfulness that keeps springing up and popping up. I just there it is again. I'm being a jerk to someone, right? Okay, there it is. So I, I want that resurrection body that is not tempted by sin. It is always loving God with heart, soul, mind, and strength. It is always loving others with sincerity and truth. And with that resurrection body on a renewed creation with a new Jerusalem, you and I will be present with Jesus for all of eternity right in this new creation that Jesus has made that Revelation ends by describing. That is going to be awesome. So because Jesus' body experienced death and curse, burial and resurrection, you and I will also experience a resurrection like His, and we will receive a body, a glorified body like His, and that is in the future, and that enables us in the present to know that we have that hope so that whatever happens to us, between now and the time of our own death, we know that the future is secure no matter what. And, and I cannot think of a better way to segue into our time at the Lord's table than this passage. Jesus, on the night when He was betrayed, He took the cup and He said, this cup, which represents His blood, is the new covenant given for you. And He took the bread and He broke it and said, this bread is my body given for you. If you're not a Christian today, I want you to know we are thrilled that you are here right now. No place we would rather you be than here to hear God's Word and to be around believers. But we want to tell you that the Lord's table is not for unbelievers, at least not yet. Uh, if you were to turn and trust in Jesus, this would be for you. But I want you to also know this is not magical. There's nothing magical about these elements, but they do symbolize what Jesus is for us and His love for His people. If you're not a believer, we would ask you not to partake in these elements, but instead, even as you sit, pray and ask the Lord to do a work in your heart to give you the faith to believe and to trust in the Lord Jesus even today. If you're a believer, you and I get to come forward, and we get to take of these elements, and as we repent of sin, as we return to our seat, as we sit and take these elements, let us have that tangible, physical reminder isn't it amazing that it's physical? Jesus wants you to be able to say, this is a tangible reminder of my body given for you, my blood shed for you, and of my love for my bride. So please bow your head with me. Heavenly Father, we are undeserving, to say the very least, of this right standing with you, the thought that people who have sinned every day for their entire life on earth in one capacity or another could stand boldly 
one day in your presence is astonishing. And it's only true because of the work of your Son represented by the elements on these tables, His body and blood given for us. God, we know that this year there already have been so many unforeseen trials, and there are more coming even this week in varying degrees for those listening now. God, give us Your resurrection power as we walk through the fellowship of Your sufferings. Give us the strength and the hope and the joy and the patience to be able to endure the day-in, day-out burdens of life in this world, relying on Your strength, Your power within us. Help us, inch by inch, to be more and more conformed to the image of Your Son, the Lord Jesus. And finally, Father, help us to fix our hope fully on the grace to be given us at the appearing of Jesus. Lord, thank You that in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, we shall be changed from corruptible to incorruptible, from fleshly bodies that die to bodies given by the Holy Spirit that can never die again. Lord, help that to be the place of our hope and our confidence, and I pray it would affect the way we live and love, uh, the way we live in this world and the way we love others. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Reading from the end of Romans 9 and the beginning of Romans 10. Paul writes, What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Father, again, for those who do not know the Lord Jesus, we would ask, Lord, that you would work in their heart that they would not try to create a righteousness of their own to stand in, but that they would instead trust in Jesus as their righteousness. Christ is the end and the goal of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And Lord, for those of us who have trusted Christ and who have this gracious, unmerited, unearned right standing with you, Lord, help that to show in our lives. Help us to have confidence in our identity and our position in the Lord Jesus. Help us not to find our identity in other things that we do and accomplishments that we have made or failed to make. Help us to rest our hope solely in the sufficiency and the righteousness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we pray this all in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. You are dismissed.